Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. June is Indigenous History Month. On June 21st, it is National Aboriginal Day. It is for these significant commemorations that today's show has a special guest. Rick Beaver, an artist, elder, and conservationist living in Alderville, will share his personal recollections of Alderville, plus he will give insight into the Indigenous life celebrated in his art and conservation activities. I'm so pleased to have with me today Rick Beaver, artist, elder, and conservationist living in Alderville. Welcome to Consider This. Rick, lots of things I want to talk to you about today related to local Indigenous history, but I want to start with some personal history. What is your earliest memory of Alderville when you were a kid? Oh, I've always been interested in nature, and of course, many of my relatives live here, so I rely upon memories of them for introductions to many aspects of that. Uh, running around here as a, a knock-kneed boy, catching frogs and butterflies and going fishing and hunting with them in later days. Um, and I suppose, you know, being out in the country as Alderville is, the uh, the opportunities for experiences in the natural world are uh, plentiful, I'll put it that way. And I took full advantage of them, the streams, the rivers, of course, Rice Lake, and uh, the hills and forests of the surrounding countryside, too, as well. So my memories are founded strongly in those areas, and uh, they're pretty visual for me, you know, and uh, in later days, uh, relatives would take embarrassing videos of me uh, running around the corner of a house with a butterfly net, and feeling somewhat cheapened at being caught in the act. (laughs) So those kind of things are important to me. And of course, uh, family living off the reserve for a great part of the year. My father was a professional electrical engineer. He followed the course of his profession abroad through Ontario and other locations. And coming back to Alderville uh, was a big deal for me. Summer vacations, weekends uh, were were very memorable things. So I lived in my grandparents' place, Amos and Mabel, and uh, it was a place with no indoor plumbing, no running water, but an abundance of other uh, amenities which were not achievable or obtainable anywhere else listening to meadowlarks in the spring and the Easter holidays outside the door and 
catching suckers in the stream that uh, float past their house. Um, things like that. Very important to me. If I was to go back to when you were a child, what would be different about the landscape compared to today if I was looking out around Alderville? How different was it then compared to now? Well, the roads are paved now. That's a big difference. Um, they've been paved, straightened. There's a lot more uh, homes built uh, around the countryside. And I guess that's a reflection of people's affluence and the increasing population, not only of this part of the world, but generally speaking. When I was born, there were two billion people in the world. They're now approaching eight and moving on from there. So those kind of changes are to be expected. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we are experiencing, generally speaking, what, what is happening in the rest of the world, too, as well, the expansion of urban areas. Uh, our nearby town, Coburg, has grown about double in the size in the same period of time. And the same is true for many of the surrounding communities. But um, I think agriculturally speaking, uh, that's changed dramatically. Uh, small farms are fewer and far between. They've gotten larger. Uh, the crops have changed, for instance. Uh, you know, there's a lot less livestock and there's more corn and soybeans and big wheat fields and that type of thing. And of course, as a, uh, an ecologist interested in um, uh, rare and endangered species, we have seen a great decline in things which in my childhood were commonplace, things like meadowlarks, barn swallows, bobolinks. So yeah, there have been some significant changes. You no longer see the, the barns. Uh, they've all come down and been replaced by larger steel structures. And uh, I think those are those are the major changes that I, uh, I I can list right off the top of my head. In those early days, what was your sense of living in the community of Alderville? What was it like? What kind of things did you do for fun? Were there special events that went on that you can remember? Can you share some of that with us? Well, yeah, there were always the Sunday school picnics uh, where everybody came participated in things like shoe kicks and <laughs> foot races, uh, uh, egg tosses, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, there was the Alderville Regatta, which my uncle Glenn Crow uh, initiated many, many years ago. He's unfortunately no longer with us, having passed away recently. Always a great canoeman and uh, did a lot for the young people who wanted to participate in an outing, a community outing on, on the shores of Rice Lake in a property called Thimmy Ridge that was purchased by the community uh, after it was established as a, uh, a First Nation. Um, and in terms of doing things growing up as a, uh, a teenager, um, there was always riding around in cars. There was going down to the lake. There was 
boating on the lake, fishing, trapping and hunting with my relatives, my uncles. Um, we played a lot of horseshoes, games which didn't require a great deal of expenditure and were commonly practiced then as they are now. Um, and we have within our community still, we have some, some very, very proficient uh, horseshoe pitching players. So um, those things were the order of the day back then. And uh, of course, mostly it was walking around, going to the small corner stores, which uh, were, were frequently uh, found in adjacent areas like uh, Sandra Cox Camp on the lake, um, in Roseneath, and uh, like that. It was mostly um, pretty low-key stuff, actually. Um, and of course, all of the other outings that are oriented toward family, with the family, on summer vacations, um, coming down, renting a cottage on Rice Lake and spending really very memorable times there, uh, experiencing the, the natural wonders and uh, the things that uh, didn't occur when you lived on high and dry land, for instance. So, things like that. How tight-knit was the Alderville community in those days? Very, as it is today. Um, with the renaissance of indigenous culture, um, it's gotten even more so, of course, because uh, I'm 74, approaching 74 years old now. And of course, uh, when I was born, back in 1940s. It wasn't all that cool to be an indigenous person. Um, we were just, and are still recovering from uh, oppression. And, uh, you know, lack of recognition is, you know, uh, things like that uh, happen. And they are part of the, the truth that this whole nation is dealing with now. But uh, nevertheless, Anybody who I ever bought or entertained as a friend and visited the reserve immediately recognized the, um, the hospitality that they experienced here. The difference in attitude toward uh, many things, the openness, uh, the invitations to <laughs> participate in meals and in events, um, those things still occur here, and they are among the things which are most memorable and distinguish this community uh, to this day. So, um, I think, you know, in totality, the, um, the experiences are very similar as they were then. And with this renaissance I've spoken about, uh, you know, the return, we now have a powwow. We didn't have that when I was a boy. We did have periodic visitations by indigenous drummers and dancers at Norman Marsden's, the then chief's place, which I found very memorable. Our drum returned here in the, um, the 1980s. 
and uh, we now have our annual powwow in July. And of course, uh, people are invited to attend and experience that camaraderie and uh, and uh, cultural ambiance uh, from all over all over the continent. So um, there have been changes, and uh, you know bigger realizations of, of the role of indigenous people in, in this country. And uh, uh, some of the truths being recently revealed, like the, the uh, sad, sad story of the finding of indigenous people buried on so-called schools, and the shock, I guess, that that went through to the, uh, the nation as a whole. And uh, we will see what it how that further changes the experience of, of being indigenous in, in this sovereign country. So we all have thoughts of that, and the anticipation is, is that if reconciliation occurs, it will bring us all closer together, and I applaud that. That can't be anything but a good thing. I'd like to talk to you a bit about your post-secondary education. Now, you did it, your undergrad in biology and you did an advanced degree in zoology. What was it like as a young man studying undergrad at the University of Guelph? I actually quite enjoyed that experience. Um, I, I developed good, sound-lasting friendships there, which still exist to this day. Um, of course, it being one of the first protracted and extended periods of separation from family and community, uh, there were um, very strong bouts of homesickness, uh, particularly in the earlier days. And when I didn't have a car, <laughs> and couldn't get back to Alderville or visit my family who at those times lived in uh, Deep River, Ontario, in the Ottawa Valley, and later on in North Bay. Um, but I would have to say, the uh, my interest in pursuing a career in further uh, stewarding the natural environment uh, certainly made those issues less pronounced, and I. Uh, I dove into the study uh, quite eagerly. I did have a hiatus after my second year when uh, reconsiderations of just exactly what kind of fit I was looking for in this whole stewardship uh, programming should occur. Uh, I found it and um, separated myself from streamed uh, programming and took a more generalized approach to my education. And I think that stood me in good stead for a broader range of, of uh, learning in the areas that apply to ecology. So I learned about birds and I learned about bees and I, I learned about the environment, geology and weather and um, I, I think those things shone for me later on, and 
at uh, at the University of Alberta, where I specialized in avian behavior. And uh, the focus, although it became more intense in specific areas, uh, the undergraduate years that I spent at Guelph allowed me to retrain uh, retain a broader interest in the generalities of the environment and how human beings fit into that. And uh, that has remained to this day. And I do believe that experience has allowed me to um, better advise not only my own community, but uh, a broader, I guess, environmental studies community as to how best to address the fit of humanity in, in the world uh, that we find ourselves in today. So the experience generally good. <laughs> like most students, I, I didn't have a lot of money. Um, but I had a lot of friends and a lot of interests. And uh, I can't say enough positive about the, the University of Guelph. I'm still cooperating with uh, the scientific community at the University of Guelph in my retirement. And uh, it still seems to be a very, very nice fit. It is often said by Indigenous people that they hold a strong tradition towards the preservation and protection of the land. Now, this relationship is considered by some to be a sacred one as well. Was that relationship a conscious part of your decision to pick biology and zoology for your advanced studies? Well, I think initially, you know, the experiences of being out on the land with my family, my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, uh, in areas like wild rice harvesting, we always had a canoe around the house. Uh, we paddled a lot. We explored a lot. Wherever my father worked, of course, in earlier years, we, we followed him. But those activities were always in the forefront of things we did as a family. Um, and even though, um, you know, our, our absence from the reservation and the so-called uh, dissonance, I guess, that occurred with respect to the practice of traditional culture, um, the language, the dance, the songs were things that had been drummed out of indigenous society in the years and generations previously. Those came later to me. But the, the environmental connection was there as a personal experience. Uh, and in the scientific community, the, the impression that I got was that it needed some attention. It, and it still does today. I still believe that, that there are very strong issues in front of us that affect our environment, climate change being first and foremost about and. I guess it's concomitant to issues of species extinctions. Um, and then uh, the miraculous and fortuitous return of an interest by our young people in their language, 
their customs, their traditions, uh, further consolidated that belief in the necessity for participating actively in environmental stewardship came in, where I learned that the first lessons of creation given to us, first of all, was to be good people. Just be good people, kind, generous, considerate, respectful uh, to one another. To extend that to the natural world, to be kind, considerate, respectful to other living beings and their necessities for life. And uh, the second rule fell automatically into place. Take care of this place. So you're absolutely right, Robert, in, in, in mentioning the fact that uh, good stewardship is considered a sacred responsibility in that regard. So all aspects of it, I believe, are meant to work together, the sacred, the scientific, the indigenous, and Western knowledge. Those things can all be brought to bear to enhance both the human qualities of life and the world around us that uh, bring so much joy and pleasure to the art of, of living on this planet. Well, speaking of art, while you did work for a few years as a biologist, you quickly moved to becoming an artist. Can you describe the transition that took place? Well, you know, there is a period in time when one practices the scientific approach um, and the collection of objective understanding of the world, confirmation through the collection of data and uh, fitting them to various hypotheses about how to discover the truth of nature and how it works, and therefore to bring some enlightenment as to direction. Um, I learned in that process, as I, as I began to discover my own roots in, in indigeneity, the place and and the the methodology whereby Anishinaabe people uh, related to the world quite successfully over thousands of years in this country we call Canada um, that had a place too and I found a great deal of it was more subjective in nature rather than objective. We have a practice and belief in what we call heart-forward thinking, where there is a more subjective relationship, a spiritual one, if you will call it, with all life, all ways of being, and therefore ways of thinking and proceeding in our communities and our societies. Um, in that sense, bringing them together, I think, as a collective, a really operative collective in, in our whole approach to 
how we live is not only how I've needed to go, because that's my experience, but I think it's a good thing for, as a matter of fact, and I involve myself in mentoring at Trent University, for instance, uh, graduate and postgraduate students in these ways of thinking. We call it two-eyed seeing. And uh, it's a good way, I believe. I'd like to pursue that a little bit more because, uh, forgive me for using sort of a Western approach to this, but it, it strikes me that, you know, being a scientist is sort of a right brain activity and being an artist is a left brain activity. And somehow you've combined those two things uh, through your art and science. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you do that and, and what it means to you and how you express it. If you, if you take a, a goal or an objective uh, approach to things, for instance, as a scientist, it was possible to collect information and become interested in the plight of orcas on the west coast of Canada, which I engaged myself in as an artist to as well. Um, the goal was to bring information, attention, and cast some light and positivity to the direction that we uh, should be exercising on behalf of the Western orca population, in this case in the Sitka River Valley of northern Vancouver Island. Uh, a lot of science was being done there. I was asked at one time to participate with a number of other artists, <laughs> Bill Reed and, and Robert Bateman among them, Tony only, uh, to give voice, I guess you would call it a pictorial voice, uh, to these things. There were also writers there, or there were filmmakers, uh, they were they were people, a broad range of individuals who could um, elaborate on, elucidate uh, the whole ecology of that particular situation out there. The, I, uh, it was the only part of the world where these killer whales were known to engage in the activity of rubbing themselves on, on certain beach stones at the mouth of the Sitka River Valley. So um, we had a big exhibition. Uh, a lot of publicity was given to the art that was prepared there. There were, there were documentaries made, books written. Um, we supported, we supported the scientific endeavor. We worked together and that result was that a sanctuary was created for those that species. And it became obvious to me then that uh, the subjective and the objective could be harmoniously harnessed to bring a desired result about. And um, art could support the environment, albeit in a different way than 
understand that uh, this week you are unveiling a, a new mural in Port Hope in the Jack Berger Sports Complex. Can you tell us a bit about that? You are correct. I was approached by the municipality of, of Port Hope and commissioned subsequently to produce a piece of work which would not only illustrate the you know, the important annual uh, return of salmon to the Ganaraska River. But to go back in history somewhat and um, bring up to date people's understanding that the uh, Michisaugeek people, as we call ourselves, uh, in English known as Mississauga, uh, Ojibwe, also had experienced this. So this is a phenomenon that goes on uh, way back through time in the centuries. True, in the old days there were Atlantic salmon coming up from the Atlantic Ocean up the St. Lawrence. As far as they could, I guess that would be Niagara Falls because they had no way of surmounting Niagara Falls. But in the tributaries and rivers of uh, Lake Ontario, to a lesser extent, uh, you know, up the Ottawa River. Um, Michisagi, the name actually refers to river mouth people. And in the fall of the year, when the salmon, the Atlantic salmon returned to the rivers, we would be there. We were sustained in part by them. They were very important to us as were the migration of other species, like eels, for instance. The last eel disappeared from Rice Lake in 1984, I believe, was the last one caught. If you examine the catch records of eels in Lake Ontario, a similar decline was experienced in that time. Efforts are now being made, and some successfully, to reintroduce the Atlantic salmon to the uh, tributaries of Lake Ontario. And simultaneously, uh, other Pacific uh, native species like coho, chinook, even sockeye. Um, so while the runs of salmon uh, up the Ganaraska River are uh, altered, and species composition from what they used to be. There is still this important connection, and as 
many people should be aware, the return of the salmon to the Yanaraska River is a well-known local annual event for fishermen, sightseers, etc. And with the installation of the fish ladder at the uh, at the falls upriver, the dam upriver, uh, some recognition has been given to the importance of having a continuance of that uh, natural spectacle. So I did the painting. I went up and did the research along the Ganaraska River. I saw salmon running up. It's an amazing sight. Uh, a really invigorating, encouraging sight to see these fish coming back to the river. And I did a painting called Coho Homing about these fish returning to the river. And in the swirl of the rapids moving around the rocks in the background behind the jumping salmon were intimations of presence historically of the Michisaukee people. And uh, that's what I present to them. That's what I will be presenting and describing at the Jack Burger Complex tomorrow morning. Um, and it will be received and acknowledged by the mayor and the municipality of Port Hope. It was a wonderful engagement. I uh, Those kind of things are they add such a dimension to uh, being a communicator in the visual arena as, as I am an artist. I want to talk for a moment about the modern history of Alderville. Now, so much has been happening in the awareness of uh, by Canadians of Indigenous people, and there's been a lot of ugly history now being brought to light. Of course, there are the efforts of truth and reconciliation. But going forward, what will historians a hundred years from now be saying about Alderville? Well, I would like to think, I have no way of knowing for sure what, uh, what the perspective will be a century from now about uh, what, what Alderville is, is perceived as, but I would hope this. I would hope that they view Alderville's efforts currently to be progressive in, in many areas, certainly in social development, in the environment, certainly. Uh, we do have the Black Oak Savannah and a comprehensive uh, community-wide conservation an assessment program that's incorporated into our planning and development. Um, we have the solar farm, which gives further impetus to our belief in the sustainability efforts that are required for us to move forward in the future in, a, in as a least obtrusive way as possible. It's a five megawatt. It was the first uh, solar farm totally owned by an indigenous community in Canada. And um, it's providing benefits to our community. Um, we now have 
more integrated relationships with other surrounding communities, you know, Coburg and Port Hope. And so as we move forward together in a broader sense of community, uh, this is the only way to go, I feel. We can still have our distinctive and colorful cultural connections. Um, I would hope that people would see that we've done quite a bit to bring those to light, uh, to encourage people's celebration of the achievement of an Indigenous community toward uh, adding, I guess, diversity to the Canadian social landscape. And of course, I would like to believe that they view our contributions in the area of the environment, social policy, uh, in a positive light. I would hope, too, that they would see the absolute willingness to forgive. Yes, to understand, to have truth. But at the end of the day, we don't get to where we need to go without forgiveness. And um, for all, all the negative things that are being revealed today, the death of children in, in the residential school system, the roles of the church and government in that genocide, the many murdered and missing indigenous women and children. Um, yes, there's more work to be done. I would hope in a hundred years we have resolved those. We have reduced the incidence of those kind of events. And uh, that we have certainly played our part in, in helping that happen. Those are the most important things, I think, that I think about. Um, I would like to see us all prosper. I would like to see us all cooperate. I would love it if uh, our mutual energies can be brought together, as I've experienced in my life, to make uh, the world a better place. Rick Beaver, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're very welcome, Robert. And uh, I wish all of our listeners a better today and tomorrow. Enjoy it. That was Rick Beaver, well-known local Indigenous artist and environmentalist living in Alderville. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments, 
or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.